Amen. John chapter 15, verse 26 here in just a moment. But we continue to work our way through what's called the farewell address. Jesus is leading his disciples into the garden where he's going to be arrested and the process of the crucifixion is going to begin. But now in this section of the farewell address, Jesus returns to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Previously, Jesus had dealt with this issue and he had done it in terms of comfort. He's getting ready to leave, but he tells the disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Spirit of God is going to come to be with you forever. And during that part of the farewell address, we dealt with who the Holy Spirit is, the third member of the Trinity, co-equal with God, the presence of God with the church of Jesus Christ here and now. And Jesus continues to teach. And what we dealt with last week is that Jesus tells the disciples that there are going to be parts of this world who hate me, and there are going to be parts of this world who hate you. The passage we dealt with last week started with, now if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The passage finished with Jesus quoting Old Testament scripture saying, they, meaning the world, is going to hate me without cause. So Jesus returns now to the topic of the Holy Spirit and the word that he uses is a word that is translated in this Bible as comforter. In some of your Bibles, it's translated as helper. So right in the middle of that difficult teaching, Jesus then says, now the comforter, the helper is going to come and be with you. So if followers of Jesus Christ are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit of God, what does that mean? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, that's actually what Jesus does next in this passage of scripture. He's gonna tell us, this is what the Holy Spirit does amongst his people, this is what the Holy Spirit is actually going to do among the world as well. So if you like this vocabulary, this passage of Scripture is actually a theology of the Holy Spirit. So here are the big ideas that are going to help us make sense of what Jesus says in this passage. First of all, the Holy Spirit empowers us to bear witness. Jesus is going to say the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about me and then the Holy Spirit is going to empower you, my disciples, to continue that witness, to be my ambassadors, to be those who tell the rest of the world about me, Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers you and me to bear witness to Jesus. But bearing witness to Jesus Christ actually comes with a cost. And the Holy Spirit is going to help us endure through that cost. So he empowers us to bear witness. The second thing Jesus is going to talk about is that the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the world. And it's this fascinating, powerful passage. He brings conviction to the world. So the Holy Spirit's going to have a role inside of the disciples' life. And then Jesus says, and then in the rest of the world as well, the Holy Spirit is at work. And the Holy Spirit is at work bringing conviction in certain specific kinds of ways. In a nutshell... The role of the Holy Spirit in the world is to do what is necessary to judge sin and to bring people to Jesus Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, we're going to get to that this morning. And then the third thing, the thought that I think holds it all together for us this morning is that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work among his people 
is that Jesus Christ becomes a really big deal. This is part of what I enjoy about times of worship like this. The Spirit of God has pointed us to the love and the power that is in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's great stuff. Well, friends, let's begin reading. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. And we're going to go through the first half of verse 4 of chapter 16. This is what the word of the Lord says. Verse 26. But when the helper comes, Jesus is continuing to talk to his disciples. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Some pretty heavy stuff in this passage. But when the helper comes, Jesus has just said in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. The disciples are absorbing that coming persecution, that sense of division and tension and hate that's going to come from the world because they follow Jesus Christ. And the very next thing he says is, but when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit will come as comforter, will come as helper. And he's going to come as the spirit of truth, he says. And the spirit of truth is going to bear witness to Jesus Christ. He's going to bear witness to us about who Jesus is and through us bear witness to the world about who Jesus is. Three times in the Gospel of John, just in the last couple of chapters, Jesus is referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. Again, this is the kind of thing that I could land on for a very long time. But the spirit of truth is not the spirit of suggestion. It's not the spirit of possibility. It's not the spirit of might be right, might be wrong. It's not the spirit of it's a psychological crutch for some people. The spirit of it's good for some, but not good for others. This is the, the spirit of truth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. Everything the Holy Spirit does is reliable and good. All of it leads us. And all of it, it turns out, leads the world as well toward reality and toward Jesus Christ. There have been a handful of times as a pastor when I've talked to people about these kinds of moments where they believe the Spirit of God has said something to them and Sometimes my response is, don't blame that on the Holy Spirit. That is all you. <laughs> the spirit of truth leads us to Jesus. 
And this is the promise of the Holy Spirit to the disciples in the book of Acts as well. When the church begins and the Holy Spirit descends and the church is born and they're filled with the Spirit of God with a manifestation of the, the flames of fire above them and they're speaking in other tongues that others understand. And Peter gets up and begins to preach. You see, the Spirit has revealed the truth to them. And now through them, others are hearing about Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, before all of that happens, when the disciples are talking with Jesus one last time before his ascension, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You, well now, will be my witnesses everywhere you go. We need to be reminded from time to time about this simple fact about following Jesus Christ. Others need to know about Jesus so that they can be saved. Others need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And so now we are his witnesses. We are his ambassadors. Talking to others about Jesus Christ is not oppressive it's not combative or confrontive. Talking to others about Jesus Christ, funding missions work overseas, this is not colonialism. It is throw, throwing a drowning individual a lifeline. That's what this is. Years ago, I, was, I got to spend a little bit of time with the Atheist Club at Pikes Peak Community College. Interesting group of young people. But I had a couple of very good conversations with them. They'd sit down and they'd pepper me with questions and then a bunch of them would walk out of the room and dismiss me entirely. But in one of those conversations, a young man who identified himself as the son of a missionary, he told me, you know, I believe that missionaries going overseas to tell other people that Jesus Christ is true is oppressive. That's our truth. That's not their truth. And to go overseas and to tell them what is true is the wrong thing to do. It's the oppressive thing to do. And so I asked him, I said, now you and I disagree on this, right? He said, yes. I said, do you want me to change my mind and believe what you believe? He said, yes. And I said, why isn't that oppressive? <laughs> we can't escape the act of believing that other folks should believe what we believe. In fact, we get grumpy sometimes because people think different things, believe different things. The question is not, is it oppressive to tell other people what we think is true? The question is, is it true? Is it right? Is it good? Is it false? Is it wrong? Is it destructive? That's the question at hand. And so the spirit comes as the spirit of truth lead people to Jesus Christ, to empower us to bear witness. I love this prayer of Paul's when he writes to Philemon. It's this tiny little book. It's only one chapter long, but in Philemon 1 verse 6, he says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith may be as effective as it can possibly be so that every good and true thing may be known and Christ may be glorified. I pray that this is the case when we bear witness about Jesus Christ. 
But as Jesus is talking about this with the disciples, he goes on to say this, that bearing witness to Jesus in a fallen world is going to come with tension and it's going to come with the temptation to fall away. Now, the more time I've spent with this passage of Scripture, and I've slowed down and I've, I've dealt with it, the more I think Jesus is bringing the heat right now. You're going to bear witness to me. He says, there are going to be some people who are going to throw you out of the synagogue. What you've lived and breathed your entire life will be taken away from you because you name the name of Jesus Christ. And in fact, some people are going to kill you. And when they do it, they're actually going to think they're doing a service to God. This is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. So Jesus tells them, and Jesus tells us, I've told you all these things to keep you from falling away. This word for falling away in the Greek is a fascinating word. It's where we get our word scandalized to be scandalized by something. It literally means to fall over something, to trip over something, to be going along and then to be so offended that it actually trips you up. Jesus uses this word in another context to warn people against falling away from him as well. He uses this word to talk about apostasy. You believed, things got complicated, and you decided it was easier to not believe. You got scandalized by me. So I've told you these things so that you will not fall away. He says the pushback can become so significant that disciples may actually make the decision that just this just isn't worth it. And I'm just going to quit believing in Jesus. I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to live a different life. I'm going to believe a different. I'm going to say different things. Tension grows so much that, well, this just isn't worth it. Now, our culture right now is loaded with these kinds of stories. If you pay attention to these kinds of things, they're called deconversion stories. Some of these individuals are actually, they actually have been well-known Christians for a long time in the American evangelical world, and they come out publicly, and they've said, I've decided I'm no longer a Christian. And in every one of those deconversion stories that I have listened to and that I have read, the same thing happens every single time. One way or another, they say, I can no longer believe what Jesus says in this world. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm embarrassed by what I was taught in youth group. I'm embarrassed by what my family believes, and I can no longer believe it. And it almost always includes the church's teaching on human sexuality. I just can't believe that in public anymore. What did Jesus say? I've told you these things because the pressure is going to come, and you're going to have to make a decision which do I value more? Friends, listen to this. We need to decide that the world needs Jesus more than I need the world's affirmation. Let's sit on that for just a second. We need to decide that the world needs Jesus more than I need the world's affirmation. And this is the pressure that the world offers us. We will like you. We will accept you in our circles. We won't cancel you. We won't call you a bigot. We won't say mean things about you if you just believe what we believe. The disciple is going to say, you need to know Jesus more than I need to be accepted by you. 
This is life and death. This is eternity. This is true and false. I told you Jesus was bringing the fire. Some believers, he says, will come against other disciples because they are thinking they are doing God's work. He's actually going to think, Jesus says, that he's offering a service to God when he kills you. That's an incredible dynamic. To think I'm honoring God by killing his disciples. It's an incredible dynamic and it's actually still at play. Now, the most dramatic example of this is going to happen a little bit later on in the Gospel of John. In the book of Acts, they actually begin to martyr uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the Gospel of Acts, is, as the crowd is trying to push and push and push to get Jesus crucified, they're going to stand before Pilate and they're going to exclaim as a mob, we have no king but Caesar. And they believe that getting the Son of God crucified they are honoring God by claiming Caesar is their king. It is a crazy thing that happens. And in about seven and a half years, we're going to be in John chapter 19, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> but I told you this dynamic is still at work. Believers in God end up associating more closely with a worldly ideology or a non-Christian worldview, and they exchange God in that worldview. And then suddenly their capital G God becomes a small g God, and that God exists to serve that ideology, to serve that non-Christian worldview, to serve that political party, whatever the case may be. They've put God underneath something else, and they, they get grumpy with Christians who have refused to do that. This dynamic is still at play. Truth is exchanged for falsehood. And as Isaiah says, and falsehood is exchanged for the truth. We exchange light for dark and dark for light. This reminds me of a passage of scripture that the first time I read it and it sunk in, I still remember the moment and it is stuck with me as one of the most insightful passages in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59 verses 14 and 15 the prophet says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away because truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot come in, cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And then get this. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. If you decide in that kind of atmosphere to leave evil behind and walk with the spirit of truth, you've painted a target on your chest. You actually become the prey. Why? Because truth just can't get into the public square. It's a fascinating thing. Jesus tells the disciples, I'm telling you this because their hour will come is how he puts it in this passage. The time will come. They have enough political and cultural and economic power to get these kinds of things done. They will persecute you, these disciples. They are going to kill you, he says. They're going to have this kind of power. 
But that's why he tells them about it. That's why he tells us about it. That we remember that what Jesus has told us and we learn to not be surprised when it happens. And notice again something else that Jesus says. They do this because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. It's incredible stuff that Jesus is telling the disciples here. But he warns us about it so we would know beforehand so that we then learn to stay as close to Jesus as possible so that you and I learn to faithfully endure bearing witness through the spirit of truth to the glory of God. This is our job now. Jesus continues to talk to the disciples about the role of the Holy Spirit and what's happening here. So the second half of chapter 16, verse 4, the next section goes like this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I'm walking you through this. I'm teaching you about these things step by step by step. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for the crucifixion and the ascension. He's not going to be with them much longer. He says in this passage, you are right now, you're not asking me where I'm going because what's happening is that your hearts are sort of turned over on this. You're feeling sorrow at what I am telling you. Later on on this night, they're gonna start asking, well, where are you going? What, what does all of this mean? But right now they're absorbing this. The reaction that they're having is sorrow. They're broken up over Jesus Christ leaving. But then he goes on to tell them this, nevertheless, I tell you, it's better for you that if I go. Because if I go, then I'm going to send the helper to be with you forever. It is to our benefit, he says, that I ascend back into heaven to be with the Father. That's incredible to them. How could it be better that you suddenly disappear? But it turns out to be a powerful truth in the life of the church. You see, because of that, the Holy Spirit is now with every believer. I mean, literally, right now, the Holy Spirit is indwelling his church. The Holy Spirit is indwelling every follower of Jesus Christ. That's the gift that we have been given because God the Son has ascended into heaven and the right, sits on the right hand of the throne of the Father. We've received now the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's a promise given to every follower of Jesus Christ. We go back to the book of Acts and the spirit has fallen and Peter gets up and he begins to explain to the crowds what goes on, what's going on there. And he preaches this sermon. And at the end of the sermon, he begins to explain more of it to them. He says in Acts chapter two, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
That moment of repentance, that moment of receiving Jesus Christ means you've received the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's not just to the crowd there in Jerusalem and to their families, but it's for their kids and their grandkids to everyone who follows Jesus Christ at any time. So Jesus then says, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's an interesting passage of scripture. I was reading through different translations and paraphrases. And as a matter of fact, I think the message paraphrase helps us get this pretty well. The message isn't a translation, it's a paraphrase, but I think it gets the sense of it. So the message puts this passage this way. When he comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. That righteousness comes from above where I am with the Father, out of their sight and control. That judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. So friends, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to prove the case of sin. The Holy Spirit is convicting. It's judicial language. He's proving the case of sin against humanity. And the, whole, the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the truth of Christ's righteousness. If we're following this through, then someone has been convinced of their own sinfulness. I am unrighteous and in need of spiritual healing. Then the Holy Spirit convicts us of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's Jesus. And the Holy Spirit exposes the inevitability of the coming judgment. Let's think about these for a moment or two. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. In fact, Jesus tells us what that sin is. Our sin is not moral imperfection. Our sin is not that I'm pretty good, but I lose my temper every now and then, and that needs to be fixed. That's not our basic sin. Our basic sin is our estrangement from God because we refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. He says, I convict them of their sin. The Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. He says at the end of verse nine, because they do not believe in me. So friends, we do not fix our sin by becoming more moral. We don't fix our sin by working really hard to become better people. Our sin is healed through repentance and mercy. This is actually really good news. Jesus said something very much like this earlier on to the crowds and the Jewish leaders and his disciples. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's the basic sin. That's the thing that separates us or unites us with God our Father. As Jesus has said over and over inside of this gospel, believe in me and you will receive eternal life. So the Holy Spirit proves our guilt, convicts us of our guilt and sin. And by that, 
draws us to the healing power of Jesus Christ. It's a necessary two-step process. This is the surgeon's scalpel that has to be used first so the cancer can then be removed. This is the cleansing drink that purifies our bodies so that then they can work the way they were designed to work. I must be convinced of my sin. And notice this, friends. I cannot convict you of sin. I cannot even convict myself of sin. You cannot, as much as you want to, convict other people around you of their sin. We bear witness through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit is at work inside of the hearts and minds of other people. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter what we do. doesn't matter how many times I get to sit down with the Atheist Club at Pikes Peak Community College. It is only the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, no one is so far from God as when they believe they are too close to godliness to need saving. You are never further from God than when you think you are so godly you don't need saving. So the Holy Spirit breaks that, convinces us of our sin, and then convicts the world of righteousness, the righteousness that only comes from Jesus Christ. And I love the way the message paraphrased that, out of the world's sight and out of the world's control. <laughs> we can't change whose righteousness reigns supreme. So the Holy Spirit proves the case that righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. Being a sinner, I cannot perfect myself or make myself holy enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus can. Dear friends, this is the good news. This is why the conviction of sin is good news because it is immediately followed by the truth that what you cannot heal, Jesus can. What you cannot fix, Jesus has fixed on the cross for you already. Don't work and strive to become a better person. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. I'm reminded of this powerful passage, Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through six. It's a familiar passage, but in this context, listen to the language of exchange. Listen, what ha listen to what happens to Jesus and then listen what happens to us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. This is God's work and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the twisted sin of all of us. That's what that word iniquity means in the Old Testament. The twisting, the twisting of truth. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the Holy Spirit reveals 
the inevitable judgment. And the grammar is beautiful. The ruler of this world is judged. It's not that the world, ruler of this world will be judged. The ruler of this world, meaning our enemy, the devil, is judged by Jesus Christ. Judgment for sin is already on God's calendar. In fact, it's possible that the reminders are going off on his phone. <laughs> Judgment's on his calendar. And there's nothing we can do to stop that. And Christ knows something that we are learning as his disciples. The cross and the resurrection mean that our enemy is already defeated. He is already defeated. In this world right now, he has power, he has influence, but his end is already determined by the power of Jesus Christ. This means then that the disciple, and I don't use this language often, but scripture uses this language. The disciple of Jesus Christ already walks in the victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the victor. A little bit of Latin that the church has loved for a long time, Christus Victor. Christ is the victor already. John the disciple wrote about this to the churches in 1 John chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. That's overcome the world. And this reemphasizes that first point that we need to bear witness to Jesus Christ so that souls will be saved. Scripture says that God is being patient toward all of us so that as many of us as possible may come to know Jesus and be saved. And this is how we work here and now. This is why we work here and now. So the Holy Spirit is at work bearing witness to Jesus, empowering us to bear witness. The Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world of their sin so that then they can come to know the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ and avoid the judgment that is to come. And then the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Jesus Christ. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's so much more to learn. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he's going to give you everything the Father has given me. He's going to declare it all to you. There's so much more to learn about Jesus. There's so much more to learn about walking through this life with Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I couldn't fit it into three and a half years of teaching, so the Spirit of God is going to come. And you and I now are going to walk through this life with whatever happens to us, with whatever sets of gifts and circumstances we have been given, and through the power of the Spirit of truth, we are going to learn what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to glorify Jesus Christ in your life now. This is why the Holy Spirit has been given to the Christian church and to the disciple, to death, 
through death and for all of eternity. It's this beautiful truth in scripture that you and I will never be separated from the spirit of God. So to that end, the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ. When he is at work, we learn more about Jesus. We grow in our awe of Jesus Christ. Some of you may recall this is why I chose the gospel of John. Because I believe right now, as much as any time in our lives, we need to see Jesus clearly. So this is what the Spirit of God is doing. So friends, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church is that Jesus is glorified. This is what Jesus says. He becomes a big deal. We learn more about him. The fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are given so that Jesus may be glorified. So the Holy Spirit is giving to us what he's received from the Father, what he has received from the Son. He is now at work giving to all of us to glorify Jesus and to bear witness to his beautiful name. This is an incredible string of things that Jesus has been teaching us about who the Holy Spirit is, what it means for us to be filled with the Spirit of God, what it is that he does. And so we know this. All of this has been designed on purpose by our Heavenly Father so that he will receive glory and that souls will be saved. This is God's plan. He's arranged all of this. It's good, Jesus says, that I ascend into heaven so the Spirit of God will come. And then this starts to happen and the church is going to explode. And so I think especially in our atmosphere right now, we need to reflect on this like, like this, I think through these lenses. We do not read a passage of scripture like this so that we are ready to do battle with our enemies. You know, their time is coming, Jesus says. They're going to kick you out of the synagogues. They're going to take your normal life away from you. They may even kill some of you. The Holy Spirit's actually going to convict them of their sin and judgment is coming. I mean, we could grab onto those things. And we could think, yeah, now I'm ready to do battle with my enemies. That's not why we're reading this passage. That's not why Jesus is giving us this passage. We're reading this so that we are ready to endure when we are maligned for naming the name of Jesus Christ. So that we will continue to do so even when it is complicated and difficult. That we will continue to bear witness to the name of Jesus Christ. So we bear witness by the power of the Holy Spirit because our words cannot convict of sin or save a soul. Not a, thing, not a single thing I say can change your mind or save your soul. That is why I spend so much time just going through Scripture so the Spirit of God can speak as clearly as possible. It is His power that causes that to happen. And we bear witness because the love and the truth of the Father has made its way to us in Jesus Christ and is now at work in us and through us to the rest of the world. We recognize as well that we cannot take our cues for what is right and acceptable from the world. 
They may even actually think that what they are doing honors God. This is, I'm spiritual, not religious, and so what I am doing is spiritually right. Whatever the language is, they may actually think they're honoring God by suppressing the voice of the disciple of Jesus Christ. So if we end up bearing witness to what the world already believes, what have we accomplished? Why did we say it in the first place? So we pass on what we have received from the spirit of truth. Even if some reject it, we pass on the truth of Jesus Christ. Friends, we take courage from the church to endure. Some of you might be tired of hearing me say this kind of thing, but this is why the local gathering of the church is becoming more and more important, not less that we actually sit next to each other, that we actually get to know each other, that we actually spend time talking about the things of Jesus Christ and praying with each other about these things. We take courage from the rest of the church of Jesus Christ. We take courage from biblical stories. We read about Daniel and Esther and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego last week. We take courage from church history. We take courage from one another. Jesus, I tell you these things that you will endure. You'll know they are come, but you will endure. And then finally, friends, most of all, this is the priority of the disciple. This is the thing that coordinates our thinking and interaction with the world around us. We believe that Jesus Christ should be glorified. Jesus said, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Here's the first thing I want you to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May it be great. May it be glorious. May it be known. May it be powerful. May it be transformative in this world. We believe that Christ should be glorified. We believe the more of Jesus, the better. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank <laughs> you.